Luke chapter 18. Uh, last week, um, we read, we read, and um, at the end of chapter 17, we read there where Jesus was teaching his disciples about the coming of the kingdom of God. And uh, you can start that clock, Brandon, if you want. And he instructed them at that time on what they needed to do in order to be prepared for it, right? The Pharisees asked, tell us about the kingdom of God when it's coming. We know that their question was kind of maybe even sarcastic or flippant. And yet Jesus used an opportunity to speak his disciples and teach them to teach us and what we might do to be prepared for the coming of his kingdom. But in doing so, Jesus also told his disciples in verse 22, you can look there at the end of chapter 17, that even though they had the desire to see the kingdom of God come, that's what they were looking for. They were looking at Christ to bring it in. He said that they're not going to see it in their lifetime. He said, you desire to see even one day in Christ saying, sorry guys, it's not going to come in your lifetime. And as Jesus concluded, he spoke really, he gave them, he gave them um, indicators uh, of what it would be like um, at that time in this world when the kingdom of God would, would come. And he did so by comparing it to the days of Noah and the, the days of Lot in order to illustrate how the world would be a place filled with violence, lawlessness, moral depravity, and religious compromise. And, and I don't know about you, but that message that Christ was giving his disciples in that moment probably wasn't received as very good news. Not only are you not going to see it like you're hoping for, as a matter of fact, it can get a lot worse before, before it takes place, before it comes. And so Jesus concluded by saying that as a result of this godlessness, you, you kind of the icing on the cake as he's telling them is that the world would be judged when the kingdom of God came. Okay? For its lawlessness, for its violence, for its moral depravity, for religious compromise. But ultimately we know because of the rejection of Jesus Christ as God's only begotten son who was sent into the world to save. And the fact of the matter is this information about the condition of the world and the judgment that would come with the, with the coming of the kingdom of God. It wasn't uplifting news since it revealed how things were going to get much worse before it got any better. And the point is, is nobody likes to get bad news, Right? Nobody likes to get bad news. And um, when we receive bad news, it can become discouraging. And we can become discouraged. And we can lose heart when we receive uh, information that we process as bad news, right? Uh, furthermore, if we look at the time that Jesus was referring to in light of um, the current condition of the world that we're living in, which is full of violence, lawless, moral depravity, and religious compromise today... Filled with it, it's understandable why many people today who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, many people today who don't have the hope and promise of eternal life like we have, it's, it's understandable with the conditions of the world and the state of, of, of society, globally speaking, it's, it's no wonder why people are losing heart, right? It's no wonder so many people are depressed. It's no wonder so many people feel like giving up. So, Jesus who understood how his disciples back then were feeling in light of this news that they had just received about the future condition of the world, about the kingdom of God, but also about how his future disciples, meaning us and the generations that would come after the time in which he was speaking about then, he, he, because he understood and knew how they would be feeling and how we would be feeling during this time before the kingdom of God came, Jesus went on in chapter 18, if you can look there now, to give an instruction on 
uh, given instruction to not lose heart, okay? And so in verse 18, chapter 1, it says, And then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So we're told about the, this guy was, had no motivation to do good based upon godliness, okay? Perhaps he was even corrupt, a, a secular judge. In a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, so Jesus said in light of this, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for this time that we get to be together to study your word. Lord, we confess and profess that we Believe and know your word to be truth and applicable for our lives, Lord. It is, it is the means by which we desire to live our lives as your Holy Spirit guides us and speaks truth to us. And we pray, God, that you would do it again today. That you would humble us and soften our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us. Father, we're grateful for the works that you're doing in and through us and in this church and through this church. Think about the bridge and the youth center as it begins to start back up this next next week, and with the preschool ministry, Lord, and reaching out to so many lives within this community that are outside of this, of this church building, and Lord, we have a desire for them to know you and to, to bring them into the kingdom of God, Lord, and we ask that you would use um, the, the women that are uh, involved in Christina um, with the, with the uh, preschool ministry, and ask that you bless it. And Lord, we pray again for your blessing upon the U-Turn for Christ ministry as Pastor Jeff and Pastor Todd are gone. Lord, we pray that you would equip Charlie and, and um, Pastor Chris to oversee well in their absence. And God, for the men that are in the ministries, we heard from Elijah, and we know um, the good work that you're doing in and through you, turn, Lord, this ministry of restoration. We pray, God, that you would continue to do so. And we give you thanks, God, that, you would see f- that you've seen fit for this, this fellowship in this little community here in Canyon City to, to reach so many lives in so many different ways. Lord, that we would have these opportunities to be the church, uh, not just be in a church building. And so, Lord, give us uh, strength in our weakness. Lord, provide for all of our needs. Lord, give us wisdom to go forward, to persevere, to endure, to never turn back. Lord, wisdom to um, bring forth your glory in this life as we wait for your return. Lord, I also want to lift up um, Grandview Christian Church Lord, as we pray for other churches in our community, and I think of Pastor Todd um, there, who's been called to minister to the people that you brought to that fellowship, other believers, other brothers and sisters. And Lord, we pray that the word would be taught there in truth today. Um, God, that um, you would give Pastor Todd compassion and insight 
um, and love for the people that you bring into that fellowship. And Lord, we also pray for Pastor Shane, the youth pastor there, and we thank you, God, for his willingness and desire to be a part of the, the bridge and, and um, Youth United and just uh, the, the church as a whole as we see our youth leaders ministering together, and we pray you would bless them. God, give us unity with those who, who call upon your son Jesus here in this fellowship first and then with those outside of these doors, Lord, um, who profess to be followers of your son Jesus. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm pretty excited about this passage of Scripture. Um, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke, not only because of what we read here in chapter 18, but also uh, in these first eight verses, but also of what we're going to read. We're going to make it all the way through verse uh, 17 today, and we'll, we'll read verses 9 through 17 here in just a little bit. But um, obviously this, this passage is on prayer, and uh, I love being instructed and reminded about prayer when we, because it's this, this tool that we've been given to be in uh, communication with God. It's an aspect of the relationship that we've been equipped with to, to be in fellowship with God who created us. And um, there's nothing greater than that. Uh, nothing better than that. And, and in this parable about prayer, Jesus plainly tells us that, that we're to always be praying and not to lose heart, right? And I think that can be looked at in, 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 a, in a couple different ways, and I want to I talk about it. And I think it's, it's a great encouragement because the truth is, is we can lose heart and we can fail in our prayer life. We can. We can lose heart and fail in our prayer life. And this is why Jesus says, Men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And, and I think that we, can, that we can lose heart and fail in our prayer life because prayer is hard work. Clearly, prayer is hard work. Um, not only that, but we can enter into prayer at times with a wrong attitude, with an attitude of indifference, meaning we don't take it as seriously as we should. Uh, we come to God in a nonchalant way in regards to prayer. Um, or, or we can lose heart because we, in prayer because we become discouraged with the circumstances or by the circumstances that often move us into prayer, right? We had a, a Bible study here on Friday night with the U-turn guys, and one of the things that we talked about is David, he talks about being in a horrible pit, and, and he says he cried out to the Lord. And often we're, we cry out in prayer in, in times when we're in horrible pits, the figuratively speaking. And so we can become discouraged by the circumstances that we're in that motivate us into prayer, but yet we can lose heart by those circumstances as well. Or we can lose heart in, in, in regards to prayer because, guys, we don't always see our prayers being answered in the time that we want or in the way that we want, right? We can lose heart. Or because we're not always convinced of the reality of prayer and prayer becomes the last resource rather than the first response, right? We can get into that mindset of, of thinking that prayer is not as important as it really is. Consequently, we lose heart, and, and, and what happens when we lose heart in our prayer life? We no longer pray as we should, as we should. So the initial understanding from this admonition is to pray with endurance, right? To pray with patience, to pray with an attitude of expectancy, and, and when I think about not losing heart in prayer, those are the things that comes to mind. The attributes, the characteristics, the things that need to be employed into our lives in regards to prayer. Praying with endurance, praying with patience, and praying with this attitude of expectancy. Because 
if we, if we stop praying and, and, and cut off our line of communication to God, you know what's going to happen? We are going to lose heart in the bigger sense. To go through this life without a relationship with God, can you imagine going back to that place? Going back to that place where you don't have a heavenly father who's greater than the circumstances that, are, that we're facing, uh, not having that ability to cry out to him? I think about people today, and I remember my own life before I gave it to Christ and the hopelessness that I felt. Where do I turn to with this life that I'm living, with these problems that I have? And again, it's no wonder so many people in this world who don't have what we have, this ability to pray, this relationship with God, this hope of eternal life, the promises that God's given us. It's no wonder that people who don't have that are suffering in this life and are hopeless and despair and, and full of despair and, and, and are discouraged. And and so, if we stop praying and cut off our lines of communication, we're going to lose heart. We're going to feel like giving up, and we're going to grieve like the rest of the world who has no hope. Now, when Jesus said that, we're, that, we're always, that we always ought to pray, I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. He didn't mean that we should have our knees bent and our eyes closed in prayer 24-7, right? Really what he's referring to is what I think might be referred to as, as a spirit of prayer. Uh, is that how we live our lives? Is, in other words, when, when, when it's time to pray or there's a need to pray, do we recognize it? And that's the, that's the first thing that we do is this, this communication with God. It's, <clears throat> you know, the millennial age, the millennial generation, they don't like talking on phones. But they sure love texting and Snapchatting and Facebooking and Instagramming. And think about that in, in regards to our relationship with God. It's not like we got to sit down and make time to get all the time to be formally like, okay, I'm going to dial, dial up God and sit there and make the time, set aside the distractions. I mean, it can be this constant interaction with God that's taking place where we're just like, I'm going to send God a Snapchat, Okay. I'm, I'm going to send God an Instagram. See, the, the, the millennials, they get it. The rest of you are like, huh? <laughs> but it's the spirit of prayer where we're constantly before God with everything that's going in our life. Hey, God, check this out. Oh, God, I need help here. Or, or please intercede in this. Or let me talk to you about that. It's, it's, it's something that takes place all the time. Now, I don't remember the statistics, but I think the average millennial spends like nine hours a day on social media. Yes, nine hours a day on social media. And, and I don't know how they, they, they figure that out. I'm, I don't think they're on their phone all the time, but they're, they're checking in and they're, they're guiding it and they're getting alerts. And so it's this constant, it's, it's a part of who they are. But so should prayer be in our life, a spirit of prayer, a spirit of prayer. In fact, the Apostle Paul affirms this idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, where he tells us to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing. And I think it's hard for us to measure, listen, I think it's hard for us to measure how much good constant prayer accomplishes. I think when we get to heaven, we'll see what good constant prayer has accomplished. I think it's hard for us to measure that, and almost, I think it's equally as hard to measure how much bad it keeps us from but we need to understand that this is not the main reason for the main motive for why we should pray. The main reason or the main motive for why we should why prayers is so vital is because it ultimately it puts us in communion with God. It puts us in communion with God. And the result of being in fellowship with God is a strengthening in the inner man. 
And when we put that in the context of what Jesus has been speaking about in chapter 17, we see a bigger picture. Let me say it again. The result of being a fellowship with God is a strengthening for us in the inner man. And what it is like, it is like a breath of fresh air to sustain us as we live in this stinky world that appears to be rotting away, that is rotting away. You ever, you ever been around something that's dying and rotting? I was on 115 coming back from the U-Tune Ranch on Thursday or Friday. I can't remember what day it is, and there was something dead alongside the road. I, my air conditioning doesn't work in my truck, so I got the windows down, and, and, and it came into the truck, and it was like I wanted to throw up. It was that bad. And then it didn't just leave. It came in and lingered, you know, even though I'm going 50 miles an hour down the road. And, and, and often this life can feel like that, that you're just submersed in this stench. And what you got to do is stick your head out the window, get fresh breath and, until it passes away. Well, guys, that's what it is like when we're strengthened in the inner man, in this fellowship, this relationship with God is, is prayer. It's like getting a breath of fresh air to sustain us while we live in this world and wait for the Lord's return. And, 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 and when we look at it that way, we, we also then again see that you can't, we can't hold our breath very long, you know? Eventually, we're going to have to breathe it in again. It's just, where are we going? If we're in constant prayer, if we're in constant communion with God, then there's this fresh air to be pumped into our lives and into our world as we live here waiting for the Lord's turn. So as we look to examine prayer, consider this illustration that Christ gives of the widow and the unjust judge, we need to understand something very important, okay? Just to give the right, the right context so that we can, we can uh, get, get the right uh, teaching from what Christ is teaching us. And, and we need to understand that Jesus is not comparing this judge, this, this judge who doesn't fear God, right? He says, nor, re, nor regard man. I mean, he has no fear of God and no fear of man. He doesn't care what anybody says. He's just going to do whatever he wants, Right? Whatever he sees fit, whatever best suits him. That's really what we're being told about this guy. And when we understand that, we see, we should know that Jesus is not comparing the judge to God, our Heavenly Father. He's not comparing. Rather, he's making a contrast. That's what's going on. This whole parable, and lots of, we have a hard time sometimes wrapping our, our mind around that because a lot of, par, most of the parables, the parables, in, in regards to illustrations, are comparative. The kingdom of God is like this, right? Well, what Jesus now is doing is using this story, this parable to say, say, the kingdom of God, our heavenly Father, is not like this. So it's not a comparison, it's a contrast. Now keep that in mind, and that gives us a better understanding of where we're going. And in doing so, Jesus, Jesus told how this woman could not get any justice against her adversaries that she deserved because she was a widow, so there's a cultural thing going on here that we probably don't understand so much so in our day because women have equal rights in the court systems today. Back then, not so much. She was a widow, and in that day, um, it would have been very difficult for her, for this widow to get justice since she had no male family member to advocate for her or to represent her in the court before this judge. But according to what we read in verse 5, this widow, she wouldn't quit coming to the judge until she had been given what she was supposed to get. She was persistent. In light of this, the point that Jesus went on to make in verses 7 and 8 was that if this selfish and unfair judge was finally willing to meet the needs of the poor widow because of her persistence and the trouble that she was causing for him, 
then we can and we should expect that our Heavenly Father who loves us and genuinely desires uh, to care for us will meet the needs of us, His children, when we cry out to Him in prayer. Why? Because He's nothing like this judge, and yet this judge would do it for this woman. So this parable, as a contrast, is telling us that God, who, who does not see us as a pest, number one, and sometimes we can feel like that. God, it's, it's me again. hate to bother you. You know, I know I've been Snapchatting you all day long, but, you know, it's, he doesn't see us as a, a pest. He doesn't see us as a thing of trouble. He's ready, and he's willing to answer our prayers anytime, every time we come to him. Isn't that awesome? Man, that's a wonderful thing. And so you can pick up the phone, okay, for the soldier guys, we can pick up the phone and God's always on the other end. He's always there. And notice that Jesus did not say, oh, excuse me, let me, let me not forget this. Um, there's another contrast. Notice that, that Jesus, um, another contrast for take, take note in the parable, and, 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 and the, the whole parable is a contrast, but it's, the other contrast is between us and the widow. Jesus is saying we're like the widow. As a matter of fact, he's choosed her and her circumstances to say, to, to illustrate even more that we're not like the widow. We're not like the widow woman. And notice that Jesus did not say that we who are God's people are like this widow woman. In fact, he said just the opposite in verse 11. What did he say in 11? He called us what? The elect of God. The elect of God. And because we're not like the widow, we should be encouraged all the more in our praying. Now, one of the difference between the woman, this woman, and us is that she was a stranger to this, to this judge. He had no relation to her. But yet, as the elect of God, we also know that we're the children of God. We're the children of God. And God, who is our Heavenly Father, knows us. And how much more, or so how much more, we should ask ourselves is a father who knows us and a father who loves us willing to answer the requests of his own children than this, this unjust judge to a woman he has no relationship with? And the answer, of course, is rhetorically, we should, we should go. We know that God's all the more willing because of the relationship that we have with him to answer and to hear and answer our prayers. Yet another difference between this woman, it gets even better, another difference between this woman and us is that this woman, she didn't even have a friend in the court. She didn't have nobody to get her case on the docket, no family member to advocate for her, and no lawyer to intercede on her behalf. But the Bible clearly teaches us that it's not so for us as the elect of God, Right? When we come before God, the Bible tells us that we have all of those things. We have an intercessor. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who it says is forever living before the throne of God to make intercession for us. So how much more, again, is the Father, our Father in heaven, willing to hear our prayers and answer them with Jesus by his side advocating for us. That's his job. That's what he's doing. You know, not that it's like this, but you know, sometimes we think, man, God must be too busy to hear my prayers. That's not the case. He's always there. But, but we got Jesus there too going, hey, one, Sean is, is talking again. He needs something again. <laughs> he's advocating for us, and he advocates for us in a real awesome way. 
and here's the greatest contrast, guys. This, this is this is most awesome part of it. The greatest contrast is that the widow came to a court of law. Okay? That's the contrast with this. She came to a court of law where the, the request that she would, 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 was making would only be met if it was justified. Right? If it was deserved. And how often do we feel that way in relationship to God that when we come to him, it's like it's a court of law where, where even like Elijah was saying, I've done good, so now God's going to answer my prayers, do what I want him to do. And then when we're not doing good, we think, well, man, God's not going to listen to me. But the, 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 the way we come to God is not like a court of law. In fact, Yet, as the children of God, when we make our requests known to him, we we're told that it's not to the court of law that we come to, but to a throne of grace. We come to God in the, in the, in the, in the format, the, 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 the room is a, is, a, is a place of grace. It's not a throne of justice. That's coming down the road. It's a throne of grace. And this is where... And this, is, and this is where and why God continues to be merciful towards us by meeting our needs and answering our crests even though we don't deserve it. It's a throne of grace. Our prayer requests, our right to come to the Lord in prayer isn't a matter of, of, of whether or we do or do not deserve it. It's on a matter of grace because of Jesus Christ who stands there before him. And so God hears us. And he answers our prayers according to his grace. Remember Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us therefore come boldly, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so to further illustrate this, Jesus will go on in verse 9, if you want to follow with me, and he says in verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And you know what? We should before we read on, we should really consider what Jesus just said here as he begins to talk about this one Pharisee and this kind of attitude that he has because we, we have to set aside this attitude and understand that there's no place for us in God's throne room apart from grace, especially in prayer. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a court of law. It's not where we can come before God feeling justified to get what we deserve. We come in grace, and there's a humility, there's a, a recognition of our own sinfulness and our great need that keeps us in this place where we live in God's grace. The Bible says, keep yourself in the grace of God. And so with this, again, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And so what did he go on to say in verse 10? He said, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And, and just so you know, the context for this 
in the Hebrew mindset, Jesus is speaking to Hebrew men, to Jewish people, when you came to the, the, to, the, to, the, to the temple to pray, you have to keep in mind, one of the things that was a standard, you never came without a sacrifice, okay? And so even though that's not direct, directly told here, it's implied, it's understood. If you were a Hebrew, you knew that you did not come to the temple without a sacrifice, okay? So they came to pray. They, that means that they would have come to make some kind of sacrifice, some kind of offering to the Lord. Many different sacrifices that you could have brought. Um, we're not told exactly what that was. Jesus doesn't differentiate that. But the implication, the understanding behind this and coming to the temple to pray is that you would come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. So two men came to the temple to pray. To, and, 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 and with that, sacrifices would have been made. One... A Pharisee, okay, and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he stood and prayed, it says, you can underline this, he prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. In verse 13, the tax collector, the tax collector standing, standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to the heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then verse 15, he also brought infants. They also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So, continuing on with the topic of prayer, Jesus told another a parable, another parable, one also full of contrast, not comparisons. And in doing so, Jesus is, he pointed out the, 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 the self-confidence, the self-righteousness, and, and, and maybe we even say the self-exaltation of this, this Pharisee, and that always takes place. If you're confident in self and, and you're, you're, you have this, this, this self-righteous attitude, you know what's going to take place? Self-exaltation. You're going to exalt yourself. You're going to go around telling everybody, including God, how great you are. And, and, and so those things go hand in hand. But, but, but Jesus is pointing out these characteristics of this Pharisee, but in, in contrast, he points out also the humility for us of the tax collector, right? And according to verse 9, Jesus told this story because, because there were some so the context for this contrast story is that there were some in the crowd who were following after him at this point, but they were still trusting in themselves. Now, as we've been studying up to this point, and because Jesus specifically refers to a Pharisee in this account, we can, can draw the lines and know that Jesus is speaking about the Pharisees. Nevertheless, the, 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 the motive was the, the, the heart attitude. Those were following him, but still trusting in themselves. In fact, they were self-righteous because they despised, it says, those who had come to put their trust in Jesus and confess that they were sinners and those who were in need of a Savior. 
And in light of this, we see how this parable is a rebuke, right? And even a word of warning to those who were trusting in themselves. And in verse 10, the first thing that we're told is that two men went to the temple to pray. But it's clear that these men did not come to God in the same way. Two completely different people and two completely different approaches when they came to God to pray, to make their offerings, to pray to God. And um, in verse 11, it tells us the Pharisee, the religious leader, right? Perhaps the one who should know better from from what we might think in our own understanding. Uh, He came to the temple to pray, but he ended up, rather than, 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 than talking to God, it says that he talked to himself. And he only, not only did he talk to himself, we see that he only talked about himself. I don't know if you noticed that, but I looked in here, and in this short prayer, we read that he repeats the word I five different times. We might say that he has an I problem. I, 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 me, me, me. Five different times. And in light of this, we should see that it's entirely possible to address our words to God, but actually only be praying to ourselves. Because our focus is on ourselves and not on God. Our passion is for our agenda and not for God's plans. Our attitude is ultimately my will be done and not for God's will to be done. And even though this Pharisee was full of praise, which, by the way, needs to be an aspect of our prayer life, one of the aspects of prayer is praise, and this, even though this, Pharisee's, this Pharisee was full of praise, we see that He rejoiced not for who God was, but rather for who he was. The focus still was on him. And I think it's safe to say that this man was deluded. Was he not? He lacked objectivity. He could not see who he really was. He was blinded, his pride, by his pride. He could not see himself for for what he really was. And sadly, um, he could not see the real needs that he had. He believed he was accepted by God because of what he did and because of what he did not do. Again, a room of justice rather than a room of grace. He believed that he was accepted by God because of what he did and because of what he did not do. And this is why he boasted in verse 12 about giving a tithe of all of his possessions and about how he fasted twice a week. By the way, he boasted in that even though the Jews were only required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Lord, I know, I know that I'm only supposed to fast once a year, but I fast twice a week boasting in himself. So the Pharisee prayed with himself because he used prayer as a means of getting public recognition and not as a spiritual exercise, as a gift given from God to communicate with him or to glorify God. Now, the other thing we're told about this, this Pharisee is that even though he was blind, isn't this true of just self-righteous religious people and even when we're filled with self-righteousness and being very religious in the sense of works-based relationship that we think that God wants from us, which is wrong. But listen, even though he was blinded by his self-righteousness and he couldn't see his own sins, he could clearly see the sins of others, could he not? And then he pridefully, he probably thanked God, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like the tax collector, like that guy over there. 
And man, if we're ever in that place where we've looked at someone and seen that and have had that attitude, then you know what? We're this Pharisee. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. (laughs) And so this Pharisee relied on his own power and on his own deeds before God, but the contrast, the tax collector, he relied on the mercy of God. He literally relied upon the compassion of God and he recognized that he was a sinner who was in need of the mercy of God. And that's a really cool word. And, and, and in contrast to the Pharisee, verse 13 tells us that the tax collector, he stood afar off. He wouldn't even so much as come close to, 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 to this place of worship, to where God was. He wouldn't even so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat upon his breast and he cried out for the mercy of God as he openly admitted that he was a sinner. And yet, in doing so, it says that he prayed to God and he was heard. Now, the idea behind this man beating his breast, okay, as he cried out in prayer for God's mercy, is, is, is um, the idea behind that is, is that he was so aware of his sin and of the corruption that was in his own heart that he, 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 he was... He was he was beating at it as if to, to punish, you know. And, and when we look at the tense of this verb in the original Greek for the word beat, we understand that the beating of his breast that is being described is a continual action. And it's an ever-present tense. A continual action. Man, he kept doing it as he admitted his sinfulness and cried out to God, have mercy on me. And Charles Spurgeon, I, I love Charles Spurgeon, one of the, the greats uh, of our faith. He wrote about this and he said, the original Greek does not say that he, that, that he smote upon his breast once, but that he smote again and smote again. And it's a, it was a continuous act. He seemed to say, oh, this wicked heart, he would smite it. Again and again he expressed his intense grief by this oriental gesture, for he did not know how else to set forth his sorrow, so grieved by his own sinfulness. Now when this tax collector beat his his breast and asked God to be merciful, it was with the Greek word, a really, really cool Greek word. It's the Greek word, hilas kohome. And it's actually a word used for an atoning sacrifice. And again, it again connects us to the, to the sacrifice that would have taken place as these men come to prayer. Be merciful to me. It's speaking of the sacrifice in which was brought. And in light of this, we see that the tax collector was saying, God, be merciful to me through the sacrifice, through this atoning sacrifice for my sins. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And the only other place in, the whole, in the, all of the New Testament that this same Greek word that is used in is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 in relationship to the Messiah, where it is translated in regards to the, 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 the sacrifice as a propitiation, which literally means a payment. Be merciful to me because of the payment. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've requested and what I brought forth, the payment, the blood. Consequently, the end result, the cool thing, the end result of this, which Jesus spoke in verse 14, is that this tax collector, he went home what? Justified. 
while the Pharisee went home, it says, a worse man than before he had come. And the word justified means literally to be declared righteous, just as if there was no sin. This guy, get he's in the, Lord, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me because of, the, because of the sacrifice which you've required and which I've brought forth. Because of the blood of this sacrifice, be merciful to me. And because of it, this man was declared righteous. More specifically, this word justified is a legal term that means this. All evidence has been destroyed. (laughs) The Bible tells us that God throws our sin as far as it is from the east is to the west when we come to Christ. You know, um, I have a court record. Do. It's, it's, you can search it. It's never going to go away. But I also had a spiritual court record, and it's nowhere to be found. It's been expunged as if I had never sinned. That's, what's, that's what this word means. All evidence been destroyed. What crime? What evidence? And that's how we stand before God through our faith in Jesus Christ, innocent, made new, as if we've never sinned because of Jesus, because of the mercy of God, because of the sacrifice, because of the atoning sacrifice. No record that we've ever sinned. So the tax collector was justified because as a sinner, he humbly prayed for mercy. And and mercy in the sense of the atoning sacrifice He prayed literally, oh God, be satisfied with the atoning sacrifice and forgive me. Notice, he did not say, and and guys, we can fall into this in our own own way. God, be merciful to me because um, I'm not a Pharisee. Even the tax collector can have the wrong attitude, right? Lord, at least I'm not one of them religious know-it-alls. He did not say, God, be merciful to me, a repentant sinner. He did not say, God, be merciful to me, a praying sinner. He did not say, God, be merciful to me, I'm only human. He did not say, God, be merciful to me, I'll try to do better. He simply prayed, praying with his whole body, with his whole soul, and his whole spirit, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. The point is, is our justification His justification, our justification, we're going to end with this if the worship team wants to come up. Our justification is the result of the mercy of God, the atoning sacrifice that allows us to receive grace. Our justification is the result of the mercy of God, and it's not the result of anything that we do or don't do. We are justified by faith. And when a person comes to God in faith, they must come humbly and honestly and confess that they are a sinner who is in the need of the mercy and forgiveness of God. Now, I read verses 15 through 17, and Luke inserts it here strategically. The Holy Spirit does for Luke in the context of what we're reading. 
And Luke placed this through the Holy Spirit, this account of the disciples forbidding the little children to come to Jesus in order to follow up on the messages found in this parable. In these parables, remember, Jesus had taught that it was necessary to be humble before God. And in and, and these verses, he compares it ultimately our humility to God or our humility before God to being childlike, like a childlike faith. And, and, and he said in verse 16, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, if we do not receive the kingdom of God like a child who is full of expectation and full of excitement, and I don't know about you, but if you read these parables and understand what Jesus is speaking here and realize who we are in Christ Jesus, we should be excited and full of expectation. As a result of what we've received, what's promised, and the relationship that we've now been brought into. Not only that, a child also comes realizing that they are not sufficient in themselves and that they are totally dependent upon others. We're not sufficient in ourselves. We're totally dependent upon God. For what? For everything. And this is what it is like. This is what it means to be childlike, not childish, okay? Nowhere do we're called to be childish, but we're to be called to be childlike. Likewise, when we are when we are humble like a child, you know what? We realize that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves and that we're completely dependent upon Jesus in order to get into the kingdom of God. And that's the message to us this morning. And so what do we say? The words of Jesus, again, we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, this, this is, uh, uh, is um, those words are um, a rebuke to some, an encouragement to others, and, and they're truth. And it's a statement of truth that we can pray and not lose heart. I'm so grateful for that, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would establish that childlike faith in us, that understanding Lord, where we have no doubts of who we are and who you are and of our need of you. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that's struggling with that and just in regards to their own acceptance by you of them, Lord, that they would see that through your son Jesus, if they put their faith and trust in him, that they can come to a throne of grace where they get what they don't deserve because they've been justified through that faith. They've been cleansed through the sacrifice, their sins been cast as far as it is from the east is to the west to be forgotten forever. And Lord, they can come to you as a son, as a daughter, and receive all that they need. Lord, we're so grateful for the reminder of this this morning. And I pray, Lord, for that person who's contemplating this today, that they would put their faith in you, that they would trust in you, that they would rely upon you, that they would build their life upon, in you and upon you and through you. And they will receive the newness of life and the, and the restoration that their sin has taken from them um, to that you would restore, Lord, um, what their sin has taken from them. Lord, give us confidence to enter into prayer and receive from you uh, what you have to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to remind